The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone. This is the first Monday of November. I hope you all remember to turn your clocks back. We're still running a little uh, short here in New Hampshire, but um, it's a day at a time sometimes. I'd like to welcome you this week for our um, show on gambling, which I'm sure all of you are going to find very interesting. interesting. Our, host, our guest today is Michael Burke. He is a former lawyer. He practiced law for 25 years in Howell, Michigan, where he was raised with his nine brothers and sisters. Michael and his wife purchased the family home, and it was there that they raised their two daughters. He's actively involved in the community. He enjoyed a successful law practice and was a devoted father. He's written a book called Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. It is um, a somewhat shockingly true story. Uh, who, when Michael went from being a very successful lawyer, a loving father and husband, and respected member of his community, to a closet alcoholic and gambling addict, um, to the tune of $1,600,000 using his client's trust funds. On June 18, 2001, he was sentenced to three to five years in prison in order to pay restitution to his victims in the amount of $1.6 million. Um, and if, when you read uh, Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled Away His Career, it's a, it's a wonderfully written book. It's a very easy-to-read book. And I think it really underlines for all of us that addiction is a brain disease, and there are many ways to trigger that disease. Uh, alcohol being one and gambling being another. So without further ado, welcome, Michael, to One Hour at a Time. Mary, thank you so much for having me on your show. I truly appreciate it. Um, it was an amazing story. I read it. I read your book on my way to Florida last week and was like um, just blown away with your honesty and with the progression of your disease. And uh, maybe you could begin by just sharing a little bit of... Um, you know, how you got started in your profession and how your disease developed. Okay. Well, first of all, I come from a family of attorneys. Uh, my grandfather, George Burke Sr., was an attorney in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, to this day, the Burke Law Firm is the oldest existing law firm in Washtenaw County. Uh, he was appointed to act as a judge at the Nuremberg War Trials. Um, my father... Uh, became an attorney, practiced with the firm for a while, didn't care for it uh, that much, and ended up uh, getting a job with the state of Michigan. He was actually the liquor control commissioner of the state of Michigan for 25 years until his death. And then, as it turns out, my high school sweetheart, uh, who I ended up marrying, uh, her father was an attorney. He actually practiced law in the same community for 50 years. 
So it just seemed, uh, there came a point in time when it seemed apparent to my wife and myself that it would make good sense that I would be the one to carry on the family tradition, and I entered into the practice of law and absolutely loved it. I loved the lawyers, the judges, my clients. It was the best way of making a living uh, that I could ever have dreamed about. It was it was more than I'd ever dreamed it could be. Uh, unfortunately, I was developing a severe alcohol problem, and in my second year of practicing law, uh, I was confronted with a, a decision, and I ended up uh, going into a treatment facility in Michigan called Brighton Hospital that back then was a 30-day uh, inpatient program. And I went in and got out of that program, and my life was absolutely turned around. Um, I ended up um, going out after that, practicing by myself. I became a sole practitioner, and I spent the next 25 years working primarily uh, with recovering alcoholics, um, who, well, who became recovering alcoholics after they came to see me. And uh, it was it was just uh, incredible. Um, there were so many people who didn't know what was going on in their lives, and I was able to direct them into treatment and get them that kind of help. And so it was a very uh, rewarding. I actually helped set up uh, the first uh, alcohol and drug courts uh, in uh, adjoining counties around here back in the 80s, and it was it was a wonderful life. In your book, you started to um, begin to share a little bit about your experience with alcohol and that um, alcohol was a big part of your uh, family. You know, drinking was kind of a, the norm. And that you, you began with a really high tolerance for alcohol as well. You know, and uh, it's it's just the way it was in, in our family. We, we were almost expected to drink, and from a very young age, uh, but there was only one rule that went along with that, and that was that you could never do anything to bring embarrassment to Dad. And uh, it was real easy for me because uh, I was one of those people you've met or you've heard about who was born with an incredibly high tolerance to alcohol. I could drink and drink and drink uh, incredible amounts of alcohol, and, and many people could not even tell that I'd been drinking. Um, and, and that went on for quite a few years. But then uh, there came a point in time when I went from uh, what most people would call normal drinking or social drinking and crossed that line into addictive drinking, and that's what took me into Brighton Hospital. I, I think the, the telling feature for the addictions that I'm aware of today, uh, the basic one is loss of control, and I had lost control. Uh, of my drinking. You had uh, mentioned in the book where there were maybe five or six different places to buy alcohol around your community and that you had kind of a, a system mapped out where you didn't go to the same place two days in a row and you were thinking that you were kind of getting away with this. Yeah, I, I, I discovered that I was starting to have a problem with alcohol, so I told my wife and my friends I was going to quit. And unfortunately, I was at that stage of the addiction where I could not quit. Uh, so I, 
I felt the only thing that I could do was to sneak alcohol. I became uh, what many in the field call a closet drinker. And what I, what I was afraid of is that people in the community might pick up on it. So uh, I had eight or nine different stores uh, where I could go uh, buy my pint. Uh, I had to have about a pint a day uh, to get me from one end of the day to the other. I, I could get up in the morning, go down to the office, meet with clients, go to court. Um, in the end, alcohol became my medication. It no longer had to do anything with having fun or getting high or enjoying it like other people. Uh, I drank because I had to, because that's the only way I could get through the day. But my biggest concern was that I didn't want the people in this community knowing that one of their new young attorneys had developed a drinking problem. So I was sneaking uh, my alcohol. And once you went to Brighton Hospital, you said in the book that you um, were advised that there, once you become alcoholic, you develop a disease of alcoholism. There are other diseases you also have to be wary of, and that um, gambling was one of the things that you were cautioned against participating in. Yep, and and that was one of the that was one of the lectures in the thirty day period. And to this day, I remember it was given by Dr. Russell Smith who was a world-renowned speaker on alcoholism, and and he told us as we were sitting uh, in the lecture, he said his biggest fear for the alcoholics at Brighton Hospital is that they would lead their alcoholism in the hospital, and when they uh, get home, they would trade that uh, for another addiction. And he had a neat way of putting it. He said, you people are the ones, if you can smoke it, if you can snort it, if you can inject it, if you can inhale it, if you can roll it. And he said, I'm referring to dice and gambling. He said, you are the people who can become addicted to it. Stay away from it. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and I certainly remember that warning uh, to this day. My problem was back then in 1978, we didn't have any gambling in Michigan to speak of. We had the lottery, and that I never bought lottery tickets. It meant nothing to me. So I chose not to pay attention to that part of the lecture. Well, and I don't think that's uncommon. I think um, there's that, well, it could never happen to me. You know, this is my problem. This This is my issue. It can never happen to me. I think that's part of our makeup. Oh, I, I think so. I remember totally buying into the concept that I couldn't do uh, cocaine, I couldn't do marijuana, uh, I'd been a, a vodka drinker, that I couldn't drink beer or wine. I, I bought into all of the the substance stuff, and I thought, you know, I, I had no problem accepting that. Uh, but when they when there was any discussion about the process addictions, I, for some reason, uh, like most alcoholics I meet today, I just didn't think that really that the process addictions applied to me. When, when, in looking back, um, do you think that there was a time in your recovery before you started to gamble that you felt like there was something missing, or were you satisfied 
mean, did you have good recovery before you? I had I had wonderful uh, recovery. I I was very strong, and to this day, it's it's been 31 years since I've had a drink. Very strong in AA today and uh, GA, of course. Uh, but what happened? What happened is uh, I started gambling a little bit. I I started going out to Vegas once a year. And uh, one of the problems that went along with it, um, my wife uh, is like the spouse of most alcoholics I know, uh, suffers from no addictions whatsoever. And she liked going out to Vegas to to see the desert and the, the nice, I was a high roller. She enjoyed the rooms we got and the restaurants and, and the we'll shows. Be right back, and we'll be right back to talk more about that after our break. We'll be right back. Okay. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit cybertipline.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, Today our guest is Michael Burke, who has written a wonderful book called Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. And prior to going to break, Michael was sharing with us the progression of his um, alcoholism and his recovery and then how he began to get into um, gambling when at the time there was no gambling in Michigan. And what I remember in the book, Michael, was that um, didn't you go with a friend or a friend suggested this is how you can learn how to be a high roller before you ever went to Las Vegas? A good friend of mine had heard that uh, Jane and I were going out to Vegas, and uh, he instructed me on what I'd have to do uh, to become a high roller. And and I will tell you that after we had a lunch, he was president of one of the local banks in Howell, and after we got done with that lunch, I had that very same feeling of excitement that I had when I first started drinking, that anticipation, that looking forward to it. And uh, and eventually, uh, I did go out on that first trip and I became a high roller. But one of the things that happened on those trips to Las Vegas is that I knew that my wife would not care for the gambling part of it. She liked everything else about it. The shows, the food, the weather. She couldn't stand being in a casino. And I, I knew that about her. I knew she wouldn't care for it. So on that very first trip, uh, I'm sorry, on the second trip when we go out to um, Nevada, I brought an extra $4,000 with me that I had not told her about. And after our vacation is all over and we're coming home and the captain on the charter flight asks, do we have any winners on board? I pulled out $4,000 and handed it to her, and I told her, these are our winnings. And I cannot tell you how excited she was. She said, we had this wonderful trip, and we did all this stuff, and they paid for everything. And that's what they do for a high roller. They picked up all our expenses, and we made this much money. She said, it's one of the best vacations I ever had. And unfortunately... All of it was premised on a lie. The lie had nothing to do, really, with making Jane happy. It had to do with me being able to go back out there the following year. And we did that for about 15 years. And as I tell people in my presentations, I strongly believe that the foundation of any addiction is built upon lies. And that's exactly what I was doing on that trip out to Vegas when I took the money with me and didn't tell her about it. One of the other things in your book, before you went your first time, you you put a considerable amount of research and practicing into going to Las Vegas, and it's almost like the the chase that that you go to. You know what? It's exactly what it is. I had six weeks. We... Set the trip back then. It was such a big deal 
to travel from one end of the country to the other. And uh, we actually set up our trip about six weeks in advance, got it all arranged at the office and everything. And uh, after my friend told me what I'd have to do to get rated as a high roller, I went out and I bought every book that I could on blackjack. And I learned what is called basic strategy in blackjack. I learned how to count cards. And I had to do that with two and four decks of cards. There were no computers back then. And I just the thrill of doing that. I'd get home at night. And I couldn't wait to get upstairs and get in bed and start studying and practicing with the cars and doing all of that. It was, it was just incredible. And Do you think you would have figured out this whole um, high roller thing if you had gone to Las Vegas without knowing it? Well, what happens? What happens is that was just once a year. Oh, would I have figured it out on my own how to yes. do this? Oh, I'm sure down the road I would have read books because I, you know, I'm an addict and, and that, and I was warned and told not to get involved in that activity. And what happened when I got into it, it was so exciting and it felt so right and it felt so good. And I used every trick that I used on myself that I, when I was drinking, very same denial. I, when I'd go, when I'd do that, when I'd sneak the money and give it to my wife, you know, I'd say to myself, well, it makes her happy. You know? And that's, that's crap. That's a lie. And that's one thing we addicts cannot afford. Because once we start to lie, we're finished. And, and that's, that's what happened to me. Do you well, remember when you first walked into your first casino in Las Vegas, how you felt? Oh, I remember the airport. I remember walking into that. It was everything I'd heard about, the machines being played in the airport. And it was, it was, it was magical. It was mystical. It was, it was everything I dreamed it would be. The neatest thing was uh, to get rated as a high roller. When you get out to Las Vegas, you notify a casino host that you want to be rated. And he will take you and introduce you to the pit boss. I had to play blackjack three nights in a row, four hours minimum a night, with a minimum bet of $100 a hand to get rated. And I could never deviate from basic strategy on one hand. And I did that, and it was one of the greatest highs I ever had in my life. And I ended up, after that trip, uh, getting rated as a high roller. If we if we fast forward a little bit, you had like 15 years of going once a year. Um, what changed? Uh, how how did your gambling addiction progress? Everything changed. I, I I tell people there's a real sick part of me that thinks I might have been able to get away with it if it had just been. Once a year, but in 1994, uh, they opened a casino in Windsor, Ontario. Windsor is about 58 miles from Howell, and all the studies they've done on proximity show that within a 50 to 60 mile radius or a one hour drive from a casino, that problems associated with compulsive gambling will double. And I turned out to be living 
proof of that. It was so easy for me to uh, go to court down in the, in the Detroit area and just kind of sneak over through the tunnel and spend a few hours gambling a couple days a week. It was it was no big deal. Nobody knew it. It was hidden, and and they call gambling the hidden addiction. And uh, I just go over and I'd sit and I'd take three hundred bucks a day or so, you know, and just have a good time and relax. I work so hard, you know. I I convinced myself that I was entitled to this. It was it's just like the denial with drinking that, that very same motivation, and uh, that's that's how the the problem started. I started in the beginning, going a couple days a week, losing three hundred bucks. And I remember thinking, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, when in reality, if you look at it, and you lose $300 a week, twice a week. That's $600 or $30,000 a year. And like any other addiction, it's only going to get worse. And that's what happened to me um, after 1994. It just kept getting worse and worse. I was spending more time and losing more money. Um, Was there any, was there a point in your gambling, Michael, where um, the light kind of, uh, somewhat like your alcohol that you had to just kind of gamble to maintain Uh, the mood or? Absolutely. Uh, I, I remember. Uh, there used to be a sign, they've now taken it down, that was uh, near the Detroit area. A large billboard that said, if you're gambling more than you can afford to lose, you have a problem. And the first time I ever looked at that sign and it meant something to me, it was too late. Just like with my drinking, I knew that I had crossed the line. And from that point on, there was no coming back. There was no uh, having fun with gambling anymore or anything like that. Uh, I was I was now into the grips of compulsive gambling. You had mentioned that you'd been active in a 12-step program and for continuously for a long time, and and it was almost like you're leading two lives. You're in you're going to 12-step program involved in in all of the I'm assuming all of the steps and yep. you know, being honest in all your daily affairs, and when you're wrong, promptly admit it. And then you have this other life where you're you're lying to your family and your clients. And we'll be right back to talk about the other life um, after this commercial. We'll be right back, everybody. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today our guest is Michael Burke, and he wrote Never Enough, One Lawyer's Truth Story of How He Gambled His Career Away. And uh, before going to break, Michael, I was trying to ask you this uh, convoluted question about um, being involved in a 12-step program and living those steps and also simultaneously having this other life where you're you're lying to, to yourself and to your family and you're stealing. And how do you reconcile that? Well, in the in the... What was so interesting is I was I was Mr. AA and I I loved AA and I loved the groups and it was just so rewarding. But somewhere around '97, two or three years after I started gambling and things were really turning the bad way, I couldn't go to AA meetings anymore because I knew I was lying about it and I I knew my whole life was a lie. Uh, but to do it there was like lying about it in church, and it turned out to be just easier for me not to go to AA anymore, and that's when I quit going. And when, you know, you've mentioned about um, casinos and gambling as kind of one form of, uh, one way to gamble, but um, there are the fantasy sports leagues where people gamble. There's golfing where people gamble. There's day traders where people gamble and um, you know there's so many avenues to to really um, be active in, in a gambling addiction uh, what do you think about that well you know I've been home about six years uh, from prison and, and I've worked with literally hundreds of gamblers and I talk to gamblers every day of the week and one of the things that I've discovered is that the majority of them uh, are either alcoholic themselves or they come from an alcoholic background, the vast majority. Uh, One of the reasons that the American Bar Association was so wonderful to publish my book is that uh, studies show that 20% of the bar suffers from substance abuse issues. Now what we're finding out is... Those are the people who go into treatment, leave treatment, get into counseling, get into a 12-step program. Everything is going great in their lives. And then they start just dabbling in buying lottery tickets, scratch-offs, 
going to casinos once in a while. Uh, in Michigan now, and they're having these more around the country, they have the charitable Texas Hold'em poker rooms and the racetracks, and they're finding out that they start doing that. And then three, four, five years down the road, they're where they get right where I was uh, at the end. They cross that line, and then we've got a real problem. Two out of three compulsive gamblers will commit an illegal act to get money with which to gamble or to take care of problems created by their gambling. Now, so we're talking about the worst possible scenario, a person who has proximity now of a gambling venue and access to tremendous funds. And all the while understanding that addiction is a brain disease and that there is something different about someone who has an addiction. Their brain is wired differently, so they're much more vulnerable to the process addictions or um, other types of alcohol and drug addictions. And um, I don't think we emphasize that enough. You know, one of, one of the advantages of, of my lifetime is is that I can say to people today, we are with gambling today where we were with alcoholism 30 years ago. Uh, you know, today if you go through Brighton Hospital or another facility, you come out, and a lot of these people in recovery, and you've seen this, wear a blue star on their forehead. You know, I'm in recovery. I'm doing great. I went through a facility. You don't get that with the compulsive gamblers. Uh, and, and for a lot of reasons, um, I know compulsive gamblers who are CPAs, attorneys, and if the people who are employing them found, are employing them found out that they were compulsive gamblers, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a job. You know, they, they just, they'd just be fired. So it's, it's a very difficult, uh, position for, uh, people to be in. In, in recovery, when you talk about anonymity, it's a whole different thing in gambling uh, than it is in AA. You've alluded to having um, been in prison, and uh, what brought your gambling addiction to an end? What happened? The it, it really got to the point where the pain of continuing gambling was greater than the pain of having to deal with it and tell my family, tell the bar, uh, tell my community uh, what I'd done. Nobody knew I gambled. I, it was. It, it's a very, very easy addiction to hide. Uh, there's, there's no odor. There's no staggering. There's no slurred speech. Um, most people would never have an idea that you gambled. Uh, as a quick aside, I, I did a presentation a few months ago to the uh, State Bankers Association for Michigan, and there was one place where people really did uh, have knowledge of their depositors. It was the community bankers, and if people came in and they were trying to get a loan, refinance a house, or do anything like this, they would get their income taxes and their financial statements and they would see in those documents evidence of gambling problems. And they would probably know more about that individual than his own spouse or his family or people he works with. 
uh, because they have access uh, to those to those records. Uh, it's it's a real easy uh, disease to hide from most people. And as with other addictions, um, there's a huge financial cost to this addiction as well. It is it is unbelievable. And and I think what sometimes goes uh, without being said is that obviously before I took money from a client, I had pretty well wiped out my family. And what's interesting, when I took the money from my client, like just like when I took my daughter's college funds, I said to myself a lie that every gambler tells himself, I'm not stealing this money to keep it. I'm going to repay the money as soon as I win it back. And and gamblers really believe that. Yeah. The, um, the, the most terrible thing that happens to a gambler is that when you gamble as much as I did or any compulsive gambler does, you must win. And once you've won money and large sums of money, you believe with every bone in your body that it's going to come again and it's going to be better and it's going to be bigger and it's going to take care of all of these insurmountable problems that you've created. Yeah. And and you know what? For some people, it actually happens. Of course, then they just get in deeper and deeper and deeper. Gamblers, they just they don't stop until and, it's all gone. And it truly is like other addictions, a family disease. This was devastating for your family. Uh, absolutely. And emotionally. You know, absolutely uh, unbelievable. The night that uh, I had to tell uh, my family, uh, it, it's one of the reasons for the book. We had absolutely nothing to look at, to explain it to my children, to my wife. Uh, in you know, in the beginning, there just wasn't anything out there, and it was it was one of the things that uh, you know that my daughters felt was so important. You might remember one of the chapters is by uh, Amy and Katie. Right. And they came to me, and they asked if they couldn't add that chapter to give hope to family members uh, that that you can uh, come out of this on the other end. Um and that's why it was so important. I, I want to say one other thing, too, before I forget it, and that is uh, the book itself, the proceeds from the book, go to my victims uh, entirely. And, and that's a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. I would never want anybody to think that my family or I make one nickel off of this book. And that's all set up to go to the victims. And what have you learned about prison? Because you were on the other side of the aisle for so many years. It's um it's it's especially sad uh in Michigan because we were going through all and had been going through the economic problems for so long. Um it's it's difficult because all of the money has been taken away for the program, so I saw a lot of young illiterate kids in prison who get the prison number on their back. And they they come out of prison uh 
certainly no better off uh, than they were. Most of them worse off uh, than they were. And they, who's going to give them a job? We've got people in the state of Michigan who are, you know, who've never been in trouble, have led perfect lives, and they can't get a job. So it's it's a sad thing. It's also an absolutely terrifying existence. I was scared every single day of my life for three years, terrified of, of what might happen there. And luckily you had the background to be able to negotiate your way through the system, but not everybody has that ability. And so well, I think sometimes the system just victimizes people as well. Well, one of the one of the things um, that happened the three years uh, sentence was a believe it or not a long sentence for this type of crime. My guidelines call for nine months, and yet I think the best thing that happened to me in this whole situation uh, was being given three years in prison. Uh, it was. It was certainly good for me. It gave me a chance to uh, recover and rethink and, and replan my life. It was good for my family, and it was good for my victims. Um, you know, it, it gave them, uh, I, I think, a, a feeling of a, at least punishment was being doled out appropriately in this case. I, I've never heard of anyone say they wished I'd gotten more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so it, it really, it really was a, appropriate. Um, you had mentioned that the American Bar Association has published your book, and um, what kind? I know they have a, a lawyer assistance program for alcohol and substance and other drugs. Um, do they have one for gambling as well? Uh, I am finding. I I go around the country now. Uh, speaking on compulsive gambling, just like you and I are today. And I'm finding that more and more states are uh, bringing this into their lawyers and judges' assistance programs, uh, and especially the states where the, the legislatures uh, don't have the, uh, the guts to raise taxes to take right. care of the needs of their citizens, and instead try and cover it through um, gambling venues. Uh, the things going on in Michigan right now are very, very sad. Okay, and we'll be right back um, after this commercial. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom. <laughs> 
and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, shoot! Get away! Ah! Away with them, dear hornets. Hey, ah! high pitch noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult, so why put them in adult seat belts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. That's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor and sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor and sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may contain vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old fashion common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Our guest today is Michael Burke, who wrote Never Enough, One Lawyer's True Story of How He Gambled Away His Career. And um, Michael would like to share with us one of his um, experiences while he was in prison. Michael? The two worst times of my life. The first was March 30th, 2001, when I had to tell my wife and two daughters for the first time that their lives were over as they knew them. The second worst experience was I was sitting in the visiting room uh, waiting for my wife and daughter Katie to come visit me one night and I'm looking out the door and I could see them searching, uh, patting them both down. And it was just so strong to me that this was only 
because of what I'd done. That night on their way home, my wife turned to Katie and said to her, I think I could have forgiven your father for everything that he did except stealing your college fund. And Katie, who was 17 years old and a senior in high school at the time, turned to her mother and she said, Mom, had Dad been able to pick and choose who he took money from, he would not have been a compulsive gambler or an addict. He would have been a sociopath. And and I just thought, what great wisdom. Oh, wow. A 17-year-old yeah. child. Um. Which kind of speaks to the whole need for the family to be acknowledged, and the family needs to recover from the hurt and the betrayal and um, the loss of trust. Yeah, how is, do you, how do you get that back, Michael? Oh, I may not. I may never get it back with my wife. If uh, and my wife is my, we've been together since we were 16 years old. We've been married 41 years. Uh, she's my best friend. She's the mother of my children. Uh, I love her more than anybody in the world. Uh, but if she was sitting at the table right now and you asked her, do you trust Michael? She'd say no. Yeah. And it may never come back. And you know what? I'm fine with that. If that's all I have to do to be able to spend the rest of my life with this incredible woman, that's that's a very, very small penalty to pay. But you know what? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. Where, where do people go to get treatment? Well, they have helplines. Oh, okay. Thank you. Sorry. Hello? Hi. I have a question for um, the gentleman that you're speaking with. Okay. And I want to remain anonymous. Okay. If that's okay. Um, I have a question for him, and I wondered if he's aware, I'm sure he's totally aware of all the college students that are um, addicted to um, gambling online on their computers. Uh, My son went through a phase where he was doing all kinds of gambling on the computer and and Texas Hold'em games, and they became very popular, and the boys were having parties and drinking and gambling and I kind of tried to explain to him that I thought maybe it was an addiction issue, and I think he got the message because it was costing him some money. But after he stopped that, he switched over to video games, and he seems to be addicted to that. But I wonder if he's seen a huge increase in or has talked to people about gambling in the college arena. It's absolutely huge. Um, I've been asked to speak at law schools where they're having students flunk out of law school um, because they're spending all of their time uh, playing Texas Hold'em. I've worked with students from the University of Michigan from their in their school of math who want to become professional poker players. They glamorize it. They make it wonderful. They make it beautiful. I talk so many young people. The most important thing to understand about gamblers, we believe two things with our whole heart. We think we're smarter than anybody else, and we think we're luckier than anybody else. 
And when I see these young people dropping out of school and getting into tremendous trouble, not being able to get licensed in their profession uh, because of prior problems with uh, gambling and financial matters, uh, because things that students never even think about, uh, it's it's absolutely unbelievable. And if you if you see uh, your kids spending a lot of time on the computer doing the the games, doing the gambling, and in Michigan, our charities, uh, a United Way, uh, Alano clubs sponsor poker rooms uh with Texas Hold'em no limit poker it's 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 absolutely unbelievable i have never and i will never bash a casino that day will never come cuz they're doing what casinos are supposed to do but to see the state involvement in this the charities involvement in the gambling it's it's just awful and then for people to say we should have internet gambling as far as freedom of speech goes uh, I worked with a 14-year-old kid who was gambling online. I mean, it is a serious, serious problem. Does that answer your question? It does. I, I just feel that it's really hard to get young people to understand. They pretty much think they know more than you. Right. And, and that's, that's pretty standard. But I know of people who have been denied a license to practice law, who have completed law school, passed the bar, done all of that. But when they were uh, researching uh, these individuals, they found uh, problems uh, in, with their credit card background, and they found out that they were doing uh, Internet gambling. And, and I'm going to tell you, people don't want gamblers working for them, and states don't want to license them because they're the ones who are going to have access to funds. So, so it, can, it can really harm people in ways they never even thought of. Michael, very quickly, can you tell us how to get in touch with you because we're at the end of our time. Yes, uh, www.neveranoughthebook.com, and starting tomorrow on NPR, the radio reader is going to start reading Never Enough. Uh, his name is Dick Estelle. And if you just Google radio reader, um, it will show uh, what hours in, in your area is going to be nationally uh, that Wonderful. the book will be read. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us about your personal journey. And thank the caller for calling, and good luck with your son. Thank you. And Thanks, Mary. Michael. Thank you. So much for this. Great week, everybody. Okay. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com.
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 